years that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as I have among the rest of the Gentiles. I am a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Hence my eagerness to proclaim the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Martin Luther said this passage of Paul to the Romans, meaning verses 16 and 17 especially, to me was a gateway to heaven. I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is a righteousness whereby he justifies us through grace and mercy. Now that little quote probably wouldn't have meaning unless you knew what was happening in Luther's life at the time. He wanted to be free from sin. He was doing everything he could to quit sinning, and he he felt he could not rid himself of sin. And he was devastated by it, and he was losing his faith over it. And he would go to um, spiritual advisors, and, and they were not helping. And then he read Romans, and he realized that he is justified by faith, by the grace of God. And that freed him, that it was God's grace that justified him, that saved him. And that freed him up then to begin to see his relationship with God in an entirely different way. And the Reformation began. And we are part of that Reformation, but we aren't Lutheran. Remember that. (laughs) Let's pray. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I began, I was a teacher in one of my many lives, and I began teaching at a very young age. I was about 20 years old, and my first first teaching job was in Tucson in um, a school called Safford junior high, right in the middle of downtown Tucson. And most of the kids in that school were Hispanic, with a few other ethnicities thrown in. And so when I went to teach there, um, I found out that the wonderful moms from that community often supplied the school when we had um, events. They often would bring food. And when it was blue corn tamale time, oh my gosh, so delicious. Well, our first event for for my teaching, first teaching year, was a dance in October, I believe. And the custodian and I were good friends. He was a young man, and we were chatting, and he said, oh, you have to try my mom's potato salad. And so I said, okay, show me me where it is, and I'll have some. And and so he showed me, and I put a big spoonful of it on my plate, and, and I took a big bite, big mistake, a big bite, And my mouth exploded, 
in heat. I thought I was going to die, and I was trying to get enough water. Well, water doesn't ever help that hot pepper thing. I guess you're supposed to drink milk. I didn't know that at the time. I had been initiated. I had been initiated into the teachers and the staff at Safford Junior High and into that community. Well, Theodoret was a bishop, a Syrian bishop in the 5th century, and he likened the gospel to one of those peppers. And he said, outwardly, a pepper can be cold. It can look cool. You know, they're usually often green, and they're, they have a kind of a shine to them. But when you bite into it, when you crunch it between your teeth, you experience the sensation of burning fire. And he says, the gospel is quite literally a burning fire, a burning fire of God in us and in the world. It is advice to be followed. It is not, excuse me, it is not advice to be followed. It is not advice to be followed. Like a Dear Abby column. Do you remember reading Dear Abby when we used to have newspapers? And every day the newspaper would come and, and you would turn to that section and, and Abby would give us advice on how to live our lives, some problem in the family or whatever. Now, if you need advice, you can go on TikTok. I won't ask you how many of you are on TikTok. I'm not on TikTok. I have no idea how to get on TikTok. Or Instagram, and you can listen to influencers who tell you how to live, how to cook, how to dress, whatever the topic is, <clears throat> there is advice to follow. Well, the gospel is not advice. It's good news. And Paul is the herald of that gospel. Paul sees the need to refocus, to refocus both the Jewish and the Greek factions in the church on what that gospel really means. Now, what had happened was the um, Jewish Christians, along with all the Jews in Rome, had been thrown out of Rome. They had been exiled from Rome by one of the emperors. Well, five years later, a new emperor came to Rome, and he welcomed the Jews back in, including the Jewish Christians. Well, those Jewish Christians had been gone for five years, and the church was now being run by the Greek Christians. And when the Jewish Christians came back, they looked around, and things were different. Things were being done differently. And those, these words, these seven last words of the church might have been stated We've never done it that way before. Have you ever heard those? Well, Paul sees the need to refocus these two factions, and he tells them three important things. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone through faith. And in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for faith. Now, shame is an interesting emotion. <clears throat> we don't like to feel shame. It can be used to control people. It can be used to cancel them, and we see that in our culture all the time. It can be used to humiliate. It can also be used as a tool of discipline, though it's maybe not a very good tool to discipline children. There are always times when we feel 
that ashamed about something. We wish we had said something that we should have said or shouldn't have said something we shouldn't have said. We may lie in bed at night thinking, oh, why did I say that or why didn't I say that? And so shame, we're used to that emotion. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lived through the Nazi occupation of Germany and was killed for his beliefs, knew what it meant to not be ashamed of the gospel. He gave his life for it. And he expresses it well. He says, as Christians, we are called to be different, to share that belief in Christ that has been life-changing for us. There is no shame in sharing what we believe about Jesus. And the reality, though, in this life, in the life we are leading right now, is that there are going to be times when we are hesitant, when we're tired, we're weary. We may be afraid we might offend somebody. And that could be a a temptation for all who would follow Jesus. In the book of Mark, Mark 8, it's a rather long chapter, and it starts with the feeding of the 4,000. But then it goes on, and we see Peter declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord. He finally gets it. And from that statement, Jesus begins to tell the disciples that he's not going to be with them that much longer, that he's going to die. Peter can't hear this. He can't stand the thought of this. And he says, no, Lord, not you, Lord. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Jesus knew his path. He knew the way the gospel would be communicated. He knew what God had in mind. And so he says to the disciples, and then to us many years later. Take up your cross and follow me. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes into his glory, in his Father's glory, and with the angels. Well, Paul is called in the book of Romans, He explains his call to the Greeks who were non-Jews and how God had called him to this ministry. Now, you may remember, if you were reading in the book of Acts, Paul is a persecutor of Christians, and he is literally knocked off his donkey on the road to Damascus. And he meets Jesus, and Jesus says to him, what are you doing, Paul? Why are you persecuting me? And Paul is changed in an instant, and his call is to the Gentiles, although he also is called to the Greeks or to the uh, Jews. Now the Greeks, these people, these Gentiles he was called to, tended to be cynical and confused, experiencing chaos in a society worshiping many gods. Does that sound familiar? This society that they were in had a god for everything. Not unlike us today, these Greeks lived in big, successful cities, mobile populations. The rich were getting richer. The poor were sinking deeper into the mire of despair. And Paul had to walk a fine religious and political line in addressing these Greeks. 
You see, the Greeks grabbed hold of the spirituality of Jesus. They liked the spiritual part, that he was with God, that he had ascended, that the Holy Spirit had come. They loved all of that. But the physicality of the crucifixion, of Jesus' suffering, was not something that they wanted to deal with. And Paul needed to bring the whole gospel to them. The Jews, on the other hand, wanted to retain temple worship and their traditions. And so Paul had to put the two of them together, those two issues together, with the radical claim of Christ that was both a stumbling block and foolishness to many. And that sounds so familiar in our society. Nevertheless, this radical message changed men and women one heart at a time. Because not only were we not, are not only were they not ashamed of what they believed in, and not only are we not ashamed of what we believe in, but we know that it is more than just powerful. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And look at this, to everyone. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believed in him, would have life eternal through faith. Through faith. He didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. This power of the gospel is like electricity. It crackles. It's always there. When you hear the gospel first, when you take it in first, you feel different. The little hairs on the back of your neck may stand up. You go, aha, I've been waiting to hear this. When I was um, probably 16 or 17 years old, the woman who would become my mother-in-law and I were talking. Frank and I started dating when we were young. And she thought that I had already made a commitment to Christ. I I was a church-going girl, and I knew all the pieces. I just didn't have the maturity yet to put it all together. And so she just simply shared with me that when you invite Jesus into your life, when you ask him into your life and you give your life to him, you're saved. And I thought, it's that simple? And that night I went home and I knelt by my bed and I asked Jesus to come into my life and not just be Savior, but show me how to live this life. The boundary and the boundlessness of faith. The power of the gospel is boundless but it does have boundaries. It's for everyone, but the boundary is belief. The taking of that final step to say, yes, Lord, all that I am, all that I ever hope to be belongs to you. When I was a little girl, we lived in one of those older neighborhoods that had all craftsman homes, and kind of, it was in the Midwest, which is very typical, also typical of the East Coast. They all had big front porches with steps going up to the front door. And every single morning, I think from the time I could walk, I adored my dad. He was my hero. He still is. And every day when he was going to work, I walked out the front door with him to say goodbye and to wave as he drove off. And every single morning when we walked out, right next door to us on her porch was Mrs. Pollock. And Mrs. Pollock was sweeping off her porch, and she would say to my dad, Dad, Ken, have a really good day at work. And then she would say something to me, kind of in baby talk. And my father would always say to her, Mrs. Pollock, 
you know that Lynn understands English. You can speak English to her. I felt huge, tall, like I was an old person. I was so proud that my dad thought that about me. Well, Tim Keller says in an article called Lemonade on the Front Porch that those times where we had those front porches and we, the people of the neighborhood watched over each other are really gone. He said it used to be that whether or not the people in the neighborhood were Christian, they might not be. They might not even go to church, but they kind of held in common a Judeo-Christian set of values, and they watched over the neighborhood. We knew that if we messed up and they saw us, that our parents would know. And they kept that neighborhood kind of running. And they made sure that everything was okay. Well, he says now that today a general adherence to these values has melted away, as have front porches. Instead, the culture around us is becoming a place where people are completely ignorant of or even hostile to Christian belief. And there used to be, and still is to some degree, a generalized belief that God is in his heaven, he's watching over the world, and whether you believed in him personally, it's it's okay. God had ultimate control over everything. But today, that belief seems... (laughs) My watch is talking to me. Maybe it was Jesus. I should have listened. And now there is a belief that there is an unnamed spiritual force out there that permeates everything, and each person gets to express and define what that force is for themselves. Now, I don't know if you watch the Hollywood um, Awards season where Hollywood congratulates itself on being so fabulous. I watch it because I love to see the fashion. But I, I'm also always amazed when they say things like, the universe told me to record this song, or the universe brought us together for whatever reason. And I think, the universe is a bunch of rocks. How can the universe have anything to do with how I am going to live my life. Now, the God who created the universe is the one who controls that. And I can believe that. But society today has a chaos of faith like the Greeks were experiencing back in Paul's time. What to believe, which God to believe in, how to, how to manipulate that God into doing what we want to have done. It separates us rather than unites us. So what can be done to pass on faith now? The gospel, the power of God for salvation to everyone through faith. We need to help people see our faith. And Tim Keller says, this should be simple. We need to get out out, of our front, out into our front yards if we don't have a porch. We need to meet the neighbors. We need to just chat and have a normal relationship with them. We need to listen to what they have to say. 
and let them feel comfortable talking with us. We need to listen, non-judgmentally. Our lives have been immeasurably touched and changed when we encountered the good news of Jesus, and we are fortunate that God has worked through so many to bring us this message. Think about your own life. Who brought you the message of Jesus? It's usually not just one person. Family, friends, pastors, Sunday school teachers, youth group leaders, All kinds of people are brought into our lives that tell us a little bit more about faith. Well, I mentioned Luther at the beginning of the sermon. He was influenced by Augustine, St. Augustine, whose life was turned upside down for Jesus by reading a passage from Romans. You see, Augustine was a young man, very bright. He had a great career. He had a praying mother named Monica who was trying to pray him into the kingdom, but he was living an eat, drink, and be merry kind of life, and he was having a good time. He was smart. He knew God was after him, and he was avoiding that whole situation. Well, one day, this eat, drink, and be merry life was getting to him, and he was miserable. He went out into his backyard. He had a Bible. He was either already out there or he took it with him. He, has, he was a churchgoer. He had been hearing powerful preaching. And so he sat down, and then he soon fell to his knees in tears. And while he was on his knees in tears, he heard next door a little girl saying just a little ditty, pick up and read, pick up and read, pick up and read. And he opened his eyes and he saw that Bible and he picked it up and he let it, and pastors will tell you not to do this for, you know, to get your guidance from God. We should just be in scripture every day. But he let the book open. He let the Bible just fall open. And it fell to Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. The exact sin in his life that he didn't want to give up was being spoken of by the Lord through Paul, and he gave up. He gave his life fully to Christ. And Augustine became Saint Augustine. Augustine became the Bishop of Hippo. We still read his works and and quote him today because of the great life of faith that he led. And this is because this kind of faith happens because in the gospel, in that good news, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. Now that's kind of a confusing sentence, and so as we unpack it, first we need to look at righteousness and what it means. A few years ago, there was um, a slang term called being righteous. Now as I understood it at the time, it meant kind of being cool or being good with certain things. And so you might show up in a new outfit and that was a righteous outfit. I might have it all wrong. That's how I interpreted it. But it's easy to take this word apart and to see that it comes from the word right. But in our context, righteousness isn't just right. It's the righteousness of God. It is holy and it needs understanding in our life of faith. This right standing before God received from God and offered to us by his son. And the only way to receive it is by faith. 
Now, I'm one of those people that knows I need more faith. And I used to just think, all right, I am going to be more faithful. I'm not going to let this get away from me. And I would try and put on faith. But that's not where faith comes from. Faith is a gift from God. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2.8 says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is the gift of God. Not by works, lest any man should boast. And so this kind of faith revealed through faith, the righteousness of God revealed through faith, for faith, means that when we receive this faith, it isn't just for us. We build on it. And we build on it by sharing it with other people. Because we are not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is for everyone. And we begin to look at life a little differently. Imagine you have lost a loving relative, and to your surprise, you are to receive his entire fortune. The celebration is on. You haven't seen a dime yet, but you know by the good word of the lawyer, by the will that is attested to by witnesses, that you are going to now live a brand new life. And you begin to look at life much differently. In the deeply personal statement from Romans that Paul writes, we are told we have been enriched beyond measure. God is faithful to his promises in the life and death of Jesus Christ. It is ours, and we haven't done anything to deserve it. We just celebrated that fully last Sunday, the resurrection, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus And every single Sunday is Resurrection Day. We celebrate again what God has done through Jesus. But how do we maintain this inheritance of righteousness? Do we try to invest it wisely? Hold on to it? Bury it in the ground? There's a parable about that. And Jesus says we invest it. We we go out with it. We don't bury it. And God, through the Holy Spirit, maintains it in us and builds our faith. It's like compound interest. It keeps going. But there's more here. Paul tells us that salvation is more than just right living. It is more than forgiveness of sin. It is more than getting our tickets punched for heaven. In 1987, Michael Morton was convicted for murdering his wife. And after several years in prison and as a model prisoner, he came before the parole board, but each time he was denied parole because he refused to confess and show remorse for having killed his wife. He did that because he said, the only thing left is my integrity, and I did not kill her. 25 years in prison... He was, after 25 years in prison, he was exonerated by new DNA evidence. And he became the poster child for what would become the Innocence Project to free people from the justice system who have been declared guilty but are now not guilty. And it's like that for us. Not only are we freed from the prison of sin for which we are guilty, But because of the sacrifice of Jesus, it's as if we never sinned. We, too, are exonerated. Paul says, for us, rebuilding 
the rebuilding process in our lives is only accomplished when we quit trying to be our own savior. Prisoners who have been freed must rebuild a life. And when we are freed in Jesus Christ, the work of rebuilding is accomplished by the Savior himself. There is no penalty to pay. It has been paid, and that's the scandal of the gospel. And the abundant riches of God's grace fuels our response and our participation in what God is doing. So the real question becomes for us, what will we do with this gospel? And as we study Romans, what will Paul teach us about how to live the life of faith? Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that you have shown us yourself in this, these two verses. Help us to live it. Give us the power, the electrical feeling. Give us the faith. And we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.